0: Okay, we've come to last week the completion of the discourse that Jesus was giving on the tribulation and the second coming, and now Jesus is going to provide five parables or illustrations that are going to help drive home the points that he made in the discourse that he has just taught. Since these parables are connected to Christ's preceding discourse, they provide important parabolic focus upon the eschatology lesson just given. So what's that all mean? It means that all five of these parables or illustrations form a group. In other words, all the parables must refer to the same event In this case, verses 4 through 31. So keep in mind, this is flowing, beginning with verse 32, it's following Jesus' teaching on the tribulation period and on the return of Christ to the earth. Remember, we talked about nothing in Matthew 24 really refers to the rapture of the church. What's the sign of the rapture of the church? There is none. It's imminent. It can happen at any moment and at any time. And so as we move into these parables or illustrations, you might want to call them, that Jesus gives to help with understanding or to teach to the the people, keep in mind they're referring to what he has just taught. You know, some commentators come and they start to separate these things. Well, this is referring to the rapture. This is referring to the return of Christ to the earth. There, there's no reason to do that out of the context of the passage. Out of the context of the passage, it's all going to flow And so this is what we are looking at as we look at these parables and illustrations here that Jesus gives. It is in reference to help us better understand, give us insight to the events of the tribulation period and to Christ's return to the earth. So the thing we need to keep in mind is no sign of the rapture. But there are signs of Christ's return to the earth. Matter of fact, that's the question Jesus is answering. When will these things be? The when will these things be is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. They just told them the temple would be destroyed. And that occurred when? 70 70 AD, when the Romans came in and destroyed it. When will these things be? That'll be, and Jesus told them, what would happen. Then what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So sometimes we look at that, as we've talked about, and see that as three questions, when in reality it's two questions, because the sign of his coming marks the end of the age. So that actually it's one question in two parts. So overall, we have two questions, but it's in three parts that are there, with the second two parts referring to the second question. You with me so far on all of this? So tonight, we're going to be looking at the fig tree, the days of Noah, the two men and women, the faithful householder, and the wise servant. And then next week, we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 25 with the judgment of the sheep and the goats and the virgins with their oil, the wise and foolish virgins. So, yeah, the 10 virgins, yes. All right, so these parables are illustrations of Jesus are as follows. First, the fig tree illustration, verses 32 to 35. Second, the days of Noah illustration, verses 36 to 39. Third, a comparison of two men and women illustration. And fourth, the faithful householder illustration. And fifth, the wise servant illustration. These five parables are important lessons that relate to Israel. In fact, and this is Thomas Ice writing, I would go so far as to say that all the parables of the New Testament relate directly to Israel. Now let's pause there. Why would he make a statement like that? That all of the parables relate directly to Israel. Do, yeah, as opposed to the church. What? He was talking to him. All right, all right. The church doesn't exist in the Gospels. The church is not born till the day of Pentecost. So that's one reason. Secondly, what what was he doing when he came the first time? All right, he came unto his own. His own did what? They received him not. So Jesus has come. Remember, we've marked the, the change in things when the nation, formally, by their leadership, reject him and refuse to accept him as Messiah. When is that... Turning point in his ministry. Not on Pentecost. It's on the triumphal entry. Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem. And what are the people proclaiming Mass? Hosanna, here comes the King of the Jews. But what? But what? But what do the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, do? What are they plotting to do? Him. Putting him to death. Get him. He's not their king. No. You, you'll even remember when Pilate wrote over the, the the cross. What did Pilate write? Kingdom of the Jews. Like, Kingdom of the Jews, and he wrote it in three languages. Okay. So Lafayette. Pilate puts that. Were the Jewish leaders happy with that? What did they want written? He claimed, he said he was the king of the Jews. They have rejected their king. Remember the context of Jesus. Right before this discourse is given, Jesus cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You're the one who kills the prophets. You're the one who refuses to accept those who've been sent to you. How oft I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but what? You would not. You refused. They're Messiah. And so now judgment is going to come upon the nation because of their rejection Of their king. So that's the setting of all of this. The city of Jerusalem and the temple being destroyed in 70 AD is judgment upon the nation for them refusing to accept their Messiah. So, when will these things be? You're so impressed with this temple that Herod's built for you and everything? Well, let me tell you what not one stone's going to be left sitting on another stone. It's all going to be torn down. And he tells them. And from there he launches into the judgment that is coming in the future. Okay. So the parables, if we think about it, we can pretty safely say that even all the parables are addressed to a Jewish audience. And... Why does he speak to them in parables? Go over to Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 10. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And did not hear it. So Jesus speaks in parables so that they will not understand. And yet those who seek after him will understand what he's teaching. So that's true here with these parables as well in the Olivet Discourse. The the parables within the Olivet Discourse, when they speak of a coming, all relate to the second coming and not the rapture of the church. This is true because the entire Olivet Discourse was relating to the rapture of the church. I'm sorry. The entire Olivet Discourse was given to Israel and relates to her tribulation and Christ's return at the end of that period. Truths relating to the rapture of the church are revealed exclusively in the New Testament epistles, which were written specifically for the purpose of explaining the intent and nature of the church age. The only exception to this is Christ's initial unveiling of the church's hope in the Upper Room Discourse, John 14, 1-3, shortly before his death. So, we're going to look now at the fig tree. Now, the question we're going to start with, as it relates with the fig tree, does the fig tree represent Israel? And let's look and see, first of all, Matthew 24, verses 32 to 35. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, very controversial passage filled with many different means. So question number one, as we relate to this, does the fig tree represent Israel? It could. Uh, there were a lot of prophecy teachers back in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s that were insistent that the fig tree represented Israel. And that led to what prediction? What it led to was them saying, since the fig tree represents Israel, what happened in 1948? Israel becomes a nation. So the thoughts were, Israel becomes a nation in 1948. Before this generation passes away, all these things will come to pass. So, how long is a generation? 40 years. All right, generally, it's thought to be forty years. No, says the man is years, and it would, by reason of
1: strength,
0: Yeah, but that it relates to the age of the individual. But a generation of people, a generation of groups, is about forty years. So, that's so the predictions were. Israel became a nation in 1948. So within the next 40 years, what's going to happen? Gonna come back. Jesus is coming back in the next 40 years, and if you go back, if you want to, you can go back and look at prophecy teaching in the the, the 50s and the 60s. Uh, uh, there, there there was a book that became very very popular. Based on this, written by a fellow by the name of Hal Lindsey, yes. oh, yeah. oh, the, great... <laughs> the great late planet Earth. You remember the craze yeah. Yeah. around that that Why, book? Like 84
1: or something
0: like that. Yeah, so, somewhere around there. Now, Hal Lindsey is one that believed within 40 years of them that Jesus was going to come back, and there was a there was a feeding frenzy. Over that, within 40 years of this, all these things are going to come to pass. So, does the fig tree represent uh, Israel? And the next statement. What do the words, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place? What does that mean? Okay, everything that is given here would take place. So, there is this, Israel represents the fig tree. Within 40 years of Israel coming back as a nation, all these things would take place. There's also the interpretation from the preterists who say that everything we have read in the Olivet Discourse up to here was all fulfilled in 70 A.D. And right here is one of the verses that they use as a proof text that that has occurred. Because Jesus said what? All right, This generation... And they would say that was the generation that Jesus was talking to. They will not pass away until all of this is fulfilled. And since a generation is about how long? 40 40 years. And about what time would Jesus be teaching this? Somewhere maybe around 30 A.D., somewhere right around 30 to 35 A.D. in there he would be teaching this. So doesn't that fit real nice with 70 A.D.? Sure. That within 40 years, it'll all of these things will take place. So we've got to talk about this as well. Because basically, and this is not a... We're not going into preterism and everything, but let me say, preterism is based on two pillars, basically, as I examine it. It's based on these two pillars. Their belief, number one, in what this generation means, of them taking it to mean the generation that was living when Jesus was there. And secondly, their belief that the book of Revelation was written before 70 A.D. For preterism to be true, because the book of Revelation is lining up with the Olivet Discourse and the things that are recorded there, it must be written before 70 A.D. Otherwise, it's not predicting what's going to take place they would be writing after the things have already taken place well no. i i was i was actually at a debate uh, years ago between uh, a preterist and uh, Mark Hitchcock, Mark Hitchcock teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary. So, pastor there, they debated over the date of the Book of Revelation because there's a realization, totally realized, the preterists will give you that if the Book of Revelation is ever proved to be written after 70 A.D., their system crumbles. So, Steve, when you say there's lots of evidence that the book was written after 70 A.D., I totally agree with that. I think the evidence is overwhelming that the book was not written until around 90 to 100 A.D., but they refuse all of that evidence because their system will not stand if that is true. Now, I am not saying, I am not accusing them of saying they are starting with the premise that it must be written before 70 A.D., so they reject any historical facts that would indicate it was written after 70 A.D. I'm not going to accuse them of, openly, a poor scholarship, uh, but I would say they... They refused to receive other evidence that would indicate the book was written, you know, in 90 to 100 A.D. But so let me, so I I just bring that out because of this interpretation of this verse that relates that we have to deal with. What generation is being talked about and what does this uh, mean? So the, first of all, the fig tree is sometimes used as a symbol for the nation of Israel. And there's a number of passages there where the fig tree is used for Israel. However, whether or not the fig tree is a symbol for Israel is not what a proper understanding of this passage turns upon. In Luke 21, verses 29 to 33... And let's go over to Luke 21. In Luke 21, in verse 29, it says, And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All right, this is a parallel passage to what we have in Matthew 24. And so the emphasis is that it means that summer is near. When the fig tree has its leaves before summer, it will illustrate the events of the tribulation period. Therefore, when you see the events of the tribulation period, you know that Christ's return is near. The generation living at the start of the tribulation will see the return of Christ. Remember, this is a parable and not a prophecy. Now, when a parable is an illustration that has the purpose of teaching one truth. See, where people get in trouble with parables is we we read a parable, which is typically it's a story, and it's intended to teach one thing, but people go in and they try to make everything in the parable mean something. This means this, this means that, this means this, and they miss the fact that the parable is intended to teach one truth. What is the truth of the parable of the fig tree? Hi. Right, so this is to illustrate for us all the teaching that has taken place here, and... The truth that it's indicated, that it is to indicate to us is when you see these events happening, and see, in in a sense, follow my reasoning here, in a sense, what is written here in Matthew 24 is a lot of instruction to the people who are living during the tribulation period in Jerusalem. All right, let's think about something we've already talked about. When you see the abomination of desolation, who's going to see it? The Jews who are there. who are, and it's, Don't return into the city. Get out of here. Flee. If you're out in the field, don't you go back. Get out while you can get and run as fast as you can and pray that this doesn't happen on the Sabbath and hope that you're not pregnant when this happens. But just or the winter, get out of here. So the illustration of the fig tree, the parable, and Luke says it's a parable. The parable is when you see things, All right, what's Jesus telling? Let's let's think of the. Let's separate it for just a second from the context here of the passage. Jesus is saying, in the summer, the fig tree gets what, and when you see the leaves, what do you expect? You expect summer, and you expect that there's going to be figs on the tree, right? Remember, Jesus curses a fig tree because it has leaves and has no figs. Okay. So, what we have here, Jesus said, when you see summer and the leaves are coming out, you expect that there's going to be figs coming up on this tree. Learn the parable of the fig tree. When you see the leaves, when you see the things that are happening with the tribulation period, you know what? The kingdom is near and it's coming. And in order to have the kingdom, what do you have to have? Can't have a kingdom without a king. So Jesus is coming back. Know that when you see these events. That's the illustration of the victory. And so when it says, this generation will not pass away, he's making it clear. We know from the book of Daniel, how long is the tribulation period? It is seven years long. So the generation that is living that sees this happening, they can know what? The king's, coming. kings coming. And the kingdom's coming. And that generation of people will, it will happen during their lifetime. That's the illustration and the meaning and the parable of the fig tree. Not. That Israel becomes a nation in 1948, and therefore within 40 years, this will all come to pass. Like seven,
1: I thought 77.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, you, right, any questions about the fig tree?
1: So, the, all, the, all the people that were saved and are raptured, they're not going to
0: ever see that. Correct. We are not, if, if we are correct, and I believe that we are correct, oh, yeah. that we are going to be raptured out of here before the tribulation period begins, we're not going to see any of this. Well, John did. Because. When he was raptured
1: up. <laughs>
0: John saw it in vision form, yeah. not in reality That's form. Because it hasn't actually happened yet. <laughs> Well, it has not happened yet. All right, so, I don't believe God's given visions and dreams today, so, if you, all right, so, any questions about the fig tree? And who is the generation? It's the tribulation period, it is that generation of uh, people. Uh, I, no, I don't think so, because I mean, every time something happens, certainly uh, there's heightened awareness. So, for for instance, in the the current war that is going on over uh, there, uh, there are guys who are trying to line up the the current events and saying this could be it. Now, I see nothing wrong with being able to look and say, could this lead to what's going to happen? Okay, yes, it could. My problem is, is when they're definite and they say, this is it and we know this is going to happen. We're going to talk about date setting here in just a few moments, okay? I don't think it, when it comes to a parable, it means anything at all, other than other trees. See, that's the problem with the interpreting of parables in saying, well, this is the fig tree. Well, what are the other trees? What's the bark? In the Old Testament, he calls
1: trees, His trees are the
0: nations other than Israel. okay, Okay, so that we would take that in each passage. Those other passages are not parables. This is a parable. All right. Well, let me let me give you a, let me give you an illustration here. There's one commentator, and I won't give you his his name. He's a good Bible commentator, and that. But I hate reading his stuff. And here's why: if we read a story in the Old Testament. And it says something about such and such a prophet came to a tree and tied his donkey to the tree. He's going to write 50 pages on why he was riding a donkey instead of a horse. And he's going to talk about what kind of tree he tied his donkey to because it has some type of significance. You know what, sometimes I think, and and, and these guys will say, well, you know what, we're just digging out the deep things of the scripture. Sometimes he tied his donkey to a tree, because there was a tree there, and it doesn't (laughs) matter what kind of tree it was. And the fact that it's a sycamore tree or a fig tree means nothing at all, except that just happened to be the type of tree that it was there. So ju- just be careful. And especially I caution you on parables. Don't try to make everything in a parable mean something. It's for the purpose of teaching a truth, a central truth. And sometimes we get so focused on all those details, we miss the central truth. It's just a story. It's just a story. You know, it's like when I give a sermon illustration, and I use my wife in the sermon illustration. You don't need to analyze everything I say. What does this mean? What does that mean? I have to explain that at home, but it doesn't mean anything. Okay, you get
1: I spent years trying to find the other trees were, okay. I thought it did, because <laughs> okay. back, in, back in 1940
0: and 1952, other nations were carved out surrounding Israel yeah. because of the war, so guess Okay. What? okay. I don't think the other trees mean anything. Okay. <laughs> let's go. All right. We'll All right. Now, let's look at the day and the hour. At least six passages, eight if we count parallel passages, specifically warn believers against date setting in relation to the second coming and the rapture. First of all, it is clearly impossible to date set the time of the rapture since it is signless. A signless yet imminent event. It's impossible to date set it because it could happen at any moment at any time. How can anyone even come up with a scheme for date setting the rapture since we are told to always be waiting for Christ's any moment return in the air? This explains why rapture date setters have never used rapture passages as a basis for their date setting schemes since there is zero basis in actual rapture passages to attempt what is forbidden. They don't use rapture passages. They use return second coming passages. These speculators invariably go to passages related to Israel rather than the church or passages that confuse the second coming with the rapture. It is enough for something to be stated only once in the Bible for it to be true. You recognize that, right? If the Bible says something one time, that's enough. But when God says something many times, the emphasis should make such assertions even clearer. I'm listing the specific passages below so we can readily see these important biblical admonitions. Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Mark 13:32 is an exact parallel of that statement. Matthew 24:42 Therefore be on alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Matthew 24:44 For this reason you be ready too for the son of man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will Matthew 25, verse 13. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Mark 13, 33 to 37 is a parallel passage. Acts 1, 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 to 2, now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Okay, I'd say that's more than once. Mm-hmm. Yeah and and I think it does refer to the rapture of the church in 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 but it's an it's an admonition with both the second coming to the earth and the rapture I think the argument in 1st Thessalonians is hey you know full well it's not you know once again you know full well that uh, there's no need for me to write anything to you about this because it's going to come, the day of the Lord, which I believe begins with the rapture of the church. So I think what Paul is saying there, that that's in that occasion I believe he is referring to the rapture, but when he's talking about the rapture there, he's saying there's no need for me to even write to you about this they're asking questions about it because you know full well that the day of the Lord is going to come. And he it begins with the rapture. Because in chapter 4, he has just talked about the rapture of the church. And so now as he goes on in chapter 5 and he talks about the times that are going to, to follow that, he's saying there's no need for me to even write to you about this because... It's, it's imminent, and it's going to occur at any moment. Does that make sense? And that the return of the, the day of the Lord begins with the rapture of the church. Yes. That will be talking about the second coming, because that is in the context here of the Olivet Discourse. What is the Olivet Discourse about? The return of Christ to the earth. And we're going to get to that next week. We will look at that, that parable of the wise and foolish uh, virgins. Okay. What we see from all these passages we just looked at is they are absolute prohibitions against date setting. So why do we have people setting dates? Exactly. 88 reasons Jesus is coming back in 1988. Whoops, I missed it by a year. 89 reasons Jesus is coming in 1989. And I, I, I could not believe the, the guys who I thought had more discernment who fell for those books. When people asked me, hey, have you seen this book? And it says, Jesus, they even predicted the day he was going to come back. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can remember, that I don't remember what the date was on the day, but I can remember I was working in the car business then, and my boss came in and said, I didn't think you'd be here at work today. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't saved. And he said, I, I figured you wouldn't be here today. And, and I said, well, one thing I can tell you for sure. I said, I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I know it's not going to be today. Because Jesus said he's coming back at a time when people aren't looking for him to come. So that I was reasonably assured of, that it wasn't going to be that day in 1988. All right. All right, They do not teach that it was impossible to know the date in the early church, but in the last days, some would come to know it. They do not say that no one knows the day or the hour except those who are able to figure it out through some scheme. No, the date of Christ's coming is a matter of God's revelation, and he has chosen not to reveal it, even to Christ in his humanity during his first advent. Look at Matthew 24, 36. For concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. I thought Jesus was omniscient. Didn't he know everything? He does. He
1: said that when he was on earth, he gave up his... Right? But on earth, he set his... He set his glory aside, right. and he emptied himself. Yes. He's... He made now. now Willingly... Willingly... didn't
0: know, right? I mean, that's how we Yeah. I, our, our best understanding of this is that Jesus laid aside his use of some of his attributes for his own benefit. Now, be careful how we say that, though. He didn't lose his attributes. For he certainly showed many times that he was omniscient. But he willingly, because the Father chose for him to willingly not know the date while he was on earth, he willingly set that aside. So if Jesus did that and he's using that as an illustration as to why nobody knows, we should pay attention to the admonition here. in In his glorified state, does he know? Absolutely, he knows. He is currently not limited in the use of any or he is not voluntarily limited in the use of any of his attributes. The Bible teaches that God's word is sufficient for everything needed to live a life pleasing unto Christ. This means that if something is not revealed for us in the Bible, then it is not needed to accomplish God's plan for our lives. The date of Christ's return is not stated in the Bible. Therefore, in spite of what some may say, knowing it is not important for living a godly life. The Lord told Israel, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. The the date of Christ's coming has not been revealed, thus it is a secret belonging only to God. Now, the problem. How how can we say that the people during the tribulation period will not know the date of Christ's return to set up his kingdom? If we know that the tribulation period is how long? Seven years. seven years. long. What is to stop them from saying, here's when the peace treaty was signed, here is seven years. Matter of fact, they can narrow it down even to a shorter period of time, can't they? Based on what? The abomination, the abomination of desolation, that occurs at the midpoint of the tribulation period, so that they would know from the abomination of desolation that in three and a half years, Christ would return at the end of the tribulation period. Now. Yeah, they will be knowledgeable of the Bible because you're going to have the 144,000 going around teaching them and warning them. You're going to have the two witnesses for the first three and a half years going around teaching them and telling them this. What's the solution to this problem? Is there a solution to it? And I'll give you two. Don, we'll start with you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we can say, for instance, those living during the tribulation period, even the, the, the first parable that we looked at is telling us what the king's going to come during this generation when they see these events coming. So they're going to have a pretty good idea of a time frame. When that's going to occur, all right? One solution to the problem is saying, "Well, they'll know. They they may be able to figure out real close, but they won't know the exact day and hour." That's that's one solution to the problem. Yes.
1: I, I proposed this last week
0: that the days were shortened. Okay. And, Okay, well, before you go on, let me, before you go on, let me talk about that for a second. All right. All right. A second proposal is that the period of the tribulation period has been shortened. Remember, we talked about that last week. unless the days be shortened, no flesh would survive. So some people's solution to the problem is to say the second half in particular of the tribulation period will be shortened. and will not be a full three and a half years. Because, and so therefore, it would be impossible to know when Jesus was coming back. That's one of the solutions. Now, I think there's major problems with that solution. And the major problem with that are all the passages that break it down to months, that break it down to days, and that speak specifically to that. Okay, now go ahead, Jennifer.
1: Okay, so when I was driving home, I remembered the verse in Daniel 725 where it said, said, and he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints, the most hu- wear out, that's important, and think to change times and laws. And then it goes on and it talks about the times, times and half. Now, times, I looked that up in the Hebrew lexicon, um, and it, it was a specific pre, pre, I, it was like pre, I, I had my sheet, uh, predestined period of time, Okay. Mm-hmm. So I thought to myself, well, if they shorten the days now, how would that be that the days would be shortened? Well, in Revelation eight, it talks about the cosmic disturbances, how severe they are. The, you know, sky pulled up, dark, and the moon doesn't get. How will they know
0: it's Okay. But our Lord does. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I would say the proof. This is another solution to the problem. Uh, Not necessarily based on Daniel, but based more on the book of Revelation, where it talks about all the cosmic disturbances and everything that's going to take place. Uh, It is possible that there could be such disruptions in the heavens that being able to track time specifically would become very difficult during maybe even impossible during that period of of time. I, I was just, I was talking to someone and they were sharing with me if there were certain like solar bursts or something that would happen with the sun, it could knock out all of our abilities to be able to know what time it is and the passage of time there. So those are the various solutions that are given. This much we know. What can we say for sure? Nobody knows when it's going to be, and no one is going to be able to predict when it's going to uh, be. And so, you know, I think sometimes... Remember, we know that in the book of Revelation, we have the various judgments that are poured out on the earth. There's one whole set of judgments that John wasn't even allowed to write about. So who knows what's contained in those judgments. We do know that unless there was a set amount of days for this period, nobody would make it through alive that all flesh on earth would be destroyed uh, through it. So that's the answer to that. Nobody's going to know. So anytime you have anyone who is telling you they have figured out, one, when the rapture's going to occur, don't listen to anything they have to say because the rapture is what? Imminent with no sign of it. Anyone that tells you they have figured out When the return of Christ to the earth, exactly when that's going to be, you can just shut him down right then and no we've looked at the passages, nobody knows, Jesus said. And so I tend to take Jesus' word for it. He, He seems to know a few things that I don't know. And it's okay, we don't need to know. If we needed to know, God would have told us. Okay. Let's look at the the days of Noah in verses 36 to 39. But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will it be, the coming of the Son of Man, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. In the second illustration, uh, following is all of a discourse. Jesus announces a parabolic comparison between his second coming and the days of Noah. While not specifically called one in this passage, it has the distinctives of a parabolic comparison. In other words, it's not called a parable. But it's an, so whether you want to call them parables or you want to call them illustrations or likenesses, this is what we have going on here. The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Christ is making a comparison between his return, which would be what return? The second coming. And the antediluvian Days of Noah, or the time before the flood. First of all, the passage says that the second coming of Christ will be just like the days of Noah. The word order in the original language reads as follows. For just as the days of Noah, in this way is the coming of the Son of Man. The intensive participle, or the the intensive particle, just as, is a marker of similarity between events and states. When combined with the demonstrative adverb in this way, Christ is saying that the days of Noah were exactly the same as will be the time of Christ's return. Does this mean that there is an extensive list of items that can be compared with the days of Noah? I do not think so. There is a single primary point that Christ emphasizes in each of the parables which he gives. Remember, the purpose of a parable is to illustrate what? One major point. In this one, it is preparedness. The likeness is seen in the suddenness of the coming of the judgment and the unpreparedness of the world for it, declares Toussaint. Daniel Harrington says the point of the comparison between the days of Noah and the coming of the Son of Man is the unexpectedness of the crisis. So unexpected was the flood that people did not recognize it until it had already come upon them. On more than one occasion, the New Testament compares the second coming to the flood in Noah's days, as well as to other judgments, such as the days of Lot. The central point in these passages is that unbelievers were not prepared for God's judgment. This is the intention of Christ in this passage as well. So when it comes to the flood, the people of the world were what? Unprepared. Think of this. Noah didn't build the ark in a day. Don't you imagine it was quite a spectacle seeing all those animals gathered and going in to the ark? And yet in spite of all of that, they were unprepared for what was going to happen. That's what Jesus is saying. It's going to be the same thing. When Christ comes back, people are going to be unprepared for it. Okay, eating and drinking. The lack of preparedness is reinforced by the examples that our Lord cites. The Greek word used here for eating is not the word normally used. It means to bite or chew food, eat audibly uh, of animals to chew, nibble, or munch. It is only used six times in the Greek New Testament. The other five times are all found in John, usually of eating Christ's flesh. The normal New Testament Greek word for eating, which is used in the parallel passage in Luke, is a word, it occurs 158 times in the Greek New Testament, and means to take something in through the mouth, usually solids, but also liquids, to eat. What's the point? The point appears to be implying luxurious living. The unpreparedness of that day will be so absorbed in pleasing themselves or, said another way, chomping on food that they miss the fact that they are living in extraordinary times that would justify the abandoning of the normal routines of life. So when it talks about people eating and drinking in those days, it's what they're talking about. They're unprepared. They're, they're having dinner, and they are enjoying it. Okay, the marrying and giving in marriage. While eating and drinking relates to daily unpreparedness, Marrying and giving in marriage illustrates unpreparedness concerning one's long-range perspective. Marriage, while certainly an institution ordained of God, is good in and of itself. The point here is that they should not be engaged in long-range planning while unprepared for the impending judgment. Meyer tells us that it is descriptive of a mode of life without concern and without any foreboding of an impending catastrophe. Just as it would make no sense to plan marriage in the days of Noah leading up to the flood if one was unprepared for God's judgment, in the same way it makes no sense to plan for marriage in the face of the events of the tribulation that will lead up to the second coming. In the days of Noah, Noah had been preaching concerning the coming judgment of God, yet no one other than Noah's family paid attention to his message. Instead, they went about business as usual, ignoring the warnings of God's word. Uh, Gavot captured the sense well in the following Here, these pursuits are spoken of not as an evil of themselves, but as they practically give the lie to the warning of God. These are only reasonable so long as the present scene is to go on as it is. The accumulating property, when both life, property, and posterity are to be destroyed, is folly. These practices, by the unprepared, cease the day that Noah entered the ark, just as they will in the future when Christ returns. So, I mean, imagine your wedding day was the day that the flood began. You're unprepared for what's happening, right? They did not understand. Perhaps the most sobering statement in this passage is that they did not understand. They did not put two and two together. Jesus said, until the flood came and took them away. They miss that entirely till it starts raining and the water starts rising. On. Jesus then said, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man be. Here we have a similar construction that we saw in verse 37, which is the marker of similarity between events and states. Not only should similarities be noted, but it is also important to see the contrasts as well. It is important to note that the rejectors of God's word who did not understand in verse 39 is juxtaposed with the admonition to believers in verse 33, which says, Even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. The Greek word, ginosko, is used in both passages— and translated, recognize in verse 33 and understand in verse 39. This Greek word has the meaning in these contexts of to grasp the significance or meaning of something, to understand or comprehend. The difference between the one who understands and the one who does not is based upon who accepts God's word and who does not. Actually, verse 39 does say that they, the unbelievers, did not come to understand these things. However, their understanding did not come until the flood came and took them all away. This is one of the many things that separate believers from unbelievers. Believers accept God's word before an event occurs because they trust him and his prophetic word. On the other hand, an unbeliever has to be shown these things through experience, in this case, a very bad experience. Okay, so you got that in the comparison to the days of Noah. Okay, let's look at the two uh, when two men and women, verses 40 and 41. Then two men, notice the change there in the passage, then, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The illustration used in this parable is straightforward in both examples. There will be a separation where one individual will be taken and the other left behind. Also, in context, it is clear that one is a believer and the other is not. This describes a clear separation process. The question related to this passage is who is taken and who is left behind. Those who hold to pre-tribulationism have argued both ways on this issue. Does this refer to the believer being taken away and the unbeliever left behind? Or just the reverse where the unbeliever is taken away and the believer is left to enter the kingdom? I believe that the latter view is correct. It is the unbeliever who is taken away in judgment. I believe that is the correct interpretation here. Judgment. We'll get into that in chapter 25. So, those who are believers, who live to the end of the tribulation, will what? They will go into the kingdom. So, they're the ones who are left. The ones who are taken are taken to judgment because they will not go into the kingdom. Because the kingdom begins with just saved people in it. Well, it depends who you're referring to as being taken and who's left in the case of Noah. Well, yeah, well, Noah and his family were taken in that case because they were in the ark. Yeah, and I think it really, look, people argue both sides of this. Typically, the people who have argued the other side with me make this refer to the rapture as opposed to referring to the second coming. And we need to remember what's our context again into the tribulation, yeah. I can remember teaching this the first time as a young pastor in church and the old ladies of the church were ready to string me up as being a heretic. When I suggested that those who were left behind were the believers. They wanna know who've you been listening to. You have a question? Okay. As I have been arguing through Matthew 24, the focus is upon the second coming. While the rapture is nowhere to be found in this passage. Me just I hope I've hit that enough with you. The rapture is not talked about in Matthew chapter 24. It's the return of Christ. In Matthew 24, our Lord is teaching about the events leading up to his return. Tribulation events in verses 4 through 26, followed by a revelation of his second coming, which is then followed by parables that drive home lessons related to his previous teaching. I think it would be inconsistent to introduce parables about the rapture when he is not taught about the event in this passage. It is true that when the rapture occurs, there will be a separation of believers from unbelievers when we are snatched away from planet Earth. It is true that somewhere there will be two people together, and one is taken and the other left. However, that is not what is spoken of in Matthew 24 because of its context. The parables are making points about what Christ taught in verses verses 4 through 31. There are three major themes emphasized in the illustrations of the tribulation. Watchfulness, the fig tree. Preparedness, the days of Noah. Faithfulness, the thief. They come. So let's pick it up at verse 42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You know, once again, be ready. "'Who then is faithful and wise servant, "'who his master has set over his household "'to give them their food at the proper time? "'Blessed is the servant whom his master will find "'so doing when he comes. "'Truly I say to you, "'he will set him over all his possessions.'" But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come at a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we're warned to be... Awake, be encouraged, watching the Lord, but this is all in reference to the tribulation period and at the end of the tribulation period so so you catch what we 're seeing here. Jesus gave them the events of the tribulation, now he gives them parables or illustrations. To help them understand the teaching that he gave them regarding the tribulation itself. And in particular, focused on, most of them are focused on the end of the tribulation period. And watching for him to come back and being ready. When you see these events, just like seeing leaves on the fig tree. You know that the fruit's coming on the fig tree. So when you see these events of the tribulation period, no, Jesus is coming back. Uh, You're going to see going on in that time, it's going to be just like the day of Noah. People are not prepared. People were not prepared for the flood. They're not going to be prepared for the return of Christ. At the end of this period, there are going to be two women, two men. They're going to be working side by side. One is going to get to go into the kingdom by being left behind. The other is going to be taken away, taken away to judgment. You are to be like the faithful householder. Uh, If you know when the thief's coming, you're going to be ready for the thief, right? If you knew right now someone was robbing your house at home, you would call for the police to be there, wouldn't you? The thief doesn't call us up and tell us he's coming. <laughs> Judy's going to get her gun and run home real quick. Okay. And then the wise servant. All right, any questions over this? Yes, sir. Oh, absolutely. Remember, uh, there's going to be a great multitude that gets saved during the tribulation period. There will be Jews that will be saved beyond the hundred. The 144,000 are the evangelists. They're not the total number of Israel getting saved. They are the ones spreading the word around the earth. So there will be lots of Jewish Christians there. Now, still as a nation, they won't all get saved. They don't get saved to the very end of the tribulation period. They have to go through all of this in order to be ready to receive their Messiah. So there will be believers in Jerusalem when the abomination of desolation takes place. They're the ones that are told, get out of here. You, You better get on the run. And I think it's a warning. And I think those that go on the run will not just be believers. I think there will be unbelievers as well. You know, they're going to be those you're going to say, you know, if you're married to an unbeliever, hey, you're going with me. Come on. We're going. We're getting out of here. We're going. Now, as a nation, they will be saved at the end of the tribulation period. Okay. But two-thirds of them are going to die. Okay. One more question. Just
1: The church, a mystery, was it a mystery that was revealed, the church? Like, when Paul, was it Paul
0: or Peter Paul reveals the mystery of the church. Yes, they know nothing saying. about right. the church. at
1: that point, it's never been talked about because it's a mystery, correct?
0: Correct. So, there is you know? no church. Right, how can people apply that to Matthew 24? It's beyond me. Because they're reading it back into it. No. No, the world will still be populated with people. The armies of the world will will all be headed to Jerusalem for a major showdown. It'll be like the last battle of Armageddon. So you have the armies from the east coming, the armies of the Antichrist coming. And it appears that they may be set up with conflict with one another but then with Christ coming back, you know, they're all going to be focused on him because Satan's behind them. See, keep, keep in mind, there's still people living all over the world. It just
1: seems like there's such a focus on just
0: Israel. Okay, there is just a focus on Israel because I guess I would say it best this way. For God, the center of the world is Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. That's what symbolized God's presence. God chose Israel to be his chosen people. So, from, from God's perspective, everything is circul- circulating around Israel. And if we keep that in mind, it helps put things in perspective. Remember when we were going through Daniel, things were in reference to those coming from the north were north of what? North of Jerusalem. Those coming from the south, south of Jerusalem, because Jerusalem in God's economy is the center. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Father, as we look at these difficult passages, once again, we ask that you would give us understanding Uh, and, And help us, Lord, that we might be ready for Jesus to come back for us at any moment and at any time. And we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.